Glad that you're here. Hope that you have a Bible with you or you'll pick one up uh, under your seat. Find Matthew chapter 2. This is week 3 in our Sunday morning sermon series titled Christmas Guests. Week 1, we talked about the shepherds uh, in and around Bethlehem who were sent by the angels. They were the first Christmas guests on the first Christmas. Last week, we talked about the wise men. Uh, These men from likely Persia who came from the east following a prophecy and following a star. This morning we're going to talk about a group of soldiers who were sent by Herod the quote-unquote king. And I'll just remind you of a few things we talked about as we talked about Herod last week. Herod was the half-Jewish, and here we use air quotes or an asterisk, king of Judea under the authority of the Romans. He's remembered as a great builder and a cruel, paranoid ruler. We put an asterisk by king because everyone knew uh, then and now that there was only one king, and that was Caesar. But the Romans allowed Herod to take this title king, and he took it, and everyone just sort of rolled their eyes at it. But if you lived in Judea, you recognized him as some sort of king. Today, we know him as Herod the Great, and we know him as Herod the Great because in his life, he carried out a number of quite impressive building projects, construction projects, most notably uh, construction and expansion of the Temple Mount, the Temple Precinct, all of that area. He undersaw a lot of that construction, so we call him Herod the Great. Last week I told you he was both cruel and paranoid, and I told you we would revisit that this week, and so I want to just say a word about his cruelty and his paranoia. Essentially, any time Herod thought that someone close to him was not loyal to him or maybe out to get him, he just had him killed. It was sort of a take action first, ask questions later. If you really weren't out to get me, no harm, no foul, other than the fact that you're dead. What he cared about mostly was his own security. And I'll give you just a few of the people that he put to death. His mother Notably, Alexandria, he thought she was out to get him, so he had her put to death. One of his wives, Miriam, his brother-in-law, Costabras, and three, we'll read about another one of his sons in this passage, but three of his sons, Antipater, Alexander, and Aristobulus, he had them all put to death because he suspected them of treason. One more story that just illustrates his paranoia and really his cruelty. On his deathbed, Herod gave an order that a group of Jewish nobles in Jerusalem be arrested. These nobles had committed absolutely no crime, and he didn't even suspect them of treason of any kind. He knew that he was on his deathbed, and he knew that when he died, no one in Jerusalem, no one in Judea would mourn his death. He really wanted to make sure people cried when he died. This is a true story. But knowing that no one would cry at his death, he gave the order that when he died, these nobles were to be executed so that somebody in Jerusalem would be crying when he died. Here's the thing. There's three men, different men, named Herod in the New Testament. One we read about here at Jesus' birth. Another Herod we read about during the crucifixion of Jesus. Another Herod we meet in the book of Acts. It was a popular name for this ruling family. They are all presented on the pages of the New Testament as clowns. 
they're a joke. But that's how we look back on them now that we know how the story played out. In real time, what I want you to understand is Herod the Great was cruel. He was paranoid. He was a cold-blooded killer. And knowing his personality helps you understand the story that we're going to look at this morning. He sent soldiers to Bethlehem. The soldiers showed up shortly after Herod gave the order to kill the baby boys in and around Bethlehem. Here's the timeline we've referenced over the last few weeks. Jesus is born. The angels appear to the shepherds, and they come to visit the manger scene. Jesus is circumcised a week later. He's dedicated at the temple a month later. The wise men show up at some point down the road. We're not entirely sure if that was soon or later. Joseph receives a warning in a dream. Herod gives the order to kill the babies. The family escapes to Egypt. Herod dies and the family returns and they settle in Nazareth. During the time that we're looking at when Herod gave the order, kill all the baby boys two years and younger in Bethlehem, Uh, Archaeologists and Bible historians and Near Eastern historians tell us that there's about 500 people living in Bethlehem, right? There's no bustling metropolis. There are not thousands upon thousands upon thousands living in the city. It's a small hamlet, a small village, 500 people. And so you can just make your own estimate about how many baby boys there would have been two years and under with a population of about 500 probably would have skewed a little bit younger then than we might today. People didn't live quite as long, so 500 or so people. There may have been 10, a dozen, 20, 30. These are the boys that die when Herod gives the order to kill the innocents, as they're often called, of Bethlehem. Jesus was not killed in this slaughter. His family escaped to Egypt, and there's a couple of things we don't know here. I just want to be honest about what we don't know. We don't know where the family went other than that they went to Egypt. There's a lot of different cities that had large Jewish populations. They could have settled in one of these cities. We're not sure where they went. We're not even sure how long they stayed there. We know they were there long enough for Herod to die, but we also know that they came back in time for Jesus to actually grow up in Nazareth. That was his hometown. We know that the family was living in the promised land, living in Nazareth, and they would travel to Jerusalem. By the time Jesus was 12, and the Bible says that that was their custom, they had done that for some number of years. We just don't know exactly where they settled, and we're not entirely sure how long they were there. So those are some of the things we know, some of the things we don't know. Look at the text, and let's just read the passage together. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, we'll read to the end of the chapter. The Word of God says this, When they had departed, that's the wise men, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. 
Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we continue this morning to celebrate the birth of Jesus. We thank you for Christmas. We thank you for the miracle of the incarnation where God became man. Lord, we know that the incarnation had an end goal, and it wasn't just telling parables. It wasn't just healing the sick. It wasn't just uh, teaching and traveling around and casting out demons. Ultimately, it was dying on a cross. And so we're mindful this morning that in the miracle of Christmas, the cross is always in view. Lord, this morning, there's things in this passage that are hard for us to take in and think about, so we ask for your help. Uh, Lord, we need wisdom. We need your spirit to uh, open our minds and our hearts And Lord, ultimately, we don't just want to learn things. Ultimately, we want to be transformed by your spirit using your word in our lives. So that's what we ask for, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. August 31, 2019, Odessa, Texas. A state trooper on I-20 attempted to pull over a man driving a Honda for failure to signal. That attempt at pulling this man over resulted in the trooper being shot. The man driving the Honda drove into town, shot someone else on the way, ditched his Honda, picked up a mail van, drove around town shooting people for some period of hours. In the end, 24 people were shot and seven people lost their lives. Many of you were here in town when that happened. You remember it happening. Some of you were out and about on that afternoon, and you remember the cop cars driving one way and the ambulance driving the the other way, and it was clearly chaotic. Something was going on. Uh, If you were on social media, you started to get reports of this and that, and no one was really sure what was happening, and uh, even Fox News began to cover an active shooting situation, and the whole thing was just very, very chaotic. It was very, very unsure and uncertain, and you remember living in a, a town like Odessa, most of us knew someone who was involved in that day in some way, shape, or form. You know, we're not that big of a community, a town of 100,000 or so, 24 different people shot, seven killed. Most of you could say, hey, I knew this guy who was involved, or I knew this kid who got shot. It was a, an incident, a tragedy that struck home for a lot of people, and you remember the chaos and the fear and the uncertainty of that day. I mention it because I just want you to think about the chaos that took place in Bethlehem, a town of 500 or so, not 100,000 or so, but 500 or so, when with one order all of the baby boys 
under two years of age were slaughtered. It would have been chaotic. It would have been terrifying. Uh, there would have been confusion. There would have been reports of this and that. And no one would have known exactly what was going on. You can imagine the scar it left on a community like Bethlehem. And I mention all of that, the horror of all of that, just to make one point. It's not a pleasant point, but it's a point we've got to make if we're going to be faithful to this text. This story reminds us of the reality and the horror of evil. It reminds us that sin and wickedness and evil are real. They're not imaginary, they're real, and they're horrific. Human sin has devastating consequences. Sometimes those consequences are felt immediately. Sometimes they're felt later, but they're always felt sooner or later. Evil is real and it's horrific. The Bible never blushes at this. You know if you've read the Bible cover to cover, there's stories in this book that leave you scratching your head and you say, what in the world is a story like that doing in the Bible? What in the world was going on? In that moment, and many times, part of what's going on is the Bible is reminding us sin is real, evil is real, it's horrific, and there are consequences. I think it's one of the reasons that so many people, I won't say us, but I'll say so many people, like Hallmark Christmas movies. How many of you have watched a Hallmark Christmas movie over the last month? How many of you are too embarrassed to admit that you've watched a Hallmark Christmas movie over the last month? There you go. You've watched them. You've seen them. You've flipped through. I think one of the reasons people like Hallmark Christmas movies is there's usually no villain. There's usually no evil force out to destroy the world or the universe. There's awkwardness in certain situations, and there's uncertainty about how this tension and this situation might play out, and maybe there's a a misunderstanding somewhere along the way that causes a little bit of narrative drama, but there's usually no villain. Uh, It's one of the reasons we like these movies. There's an escape of sorts into a world that doesn't have evil. We watched one of those movies. It was not a Hallmark movie, but it might as well have been a Hallmark movie. We watched it a couple nights ago, and there was just nothing nefarious about it. There was no bad guy. There was no villain. It was just all sort of comic relief and misunderstanding. But then, eventually, we get tired of Hallmark movies, and so you do what we did last night, and we watch true crime TV, Dateline, 48 Hours, Last night, my wife was flipping the channels, and we ended up on a TV show about Lizzie Borden, the axe murderer. Do you know how much faith it takes in another person to fall asleep while she is watching a documentary about Lizzie Borden, the axe murderer? I slept like a baby. I had nothing to worry about, but it takes a lot of confidence in the person next to you to just go to sleep. She was even saying the nursery rhyme. I'd never heard the nursery rhyme. She was telling me this nursery rhyme, and I thought, man, this could go sideways. You never know. We like those shows. Why do we like those shows? They're horrific. I mean, it was terrible. Why do we like them? It's because they're real. And we know deep down that evil is real. Sin is a problem. It's not just imaginary fairy tale land where the worst thing that happens is a misunderstanding between a boyfriend and a girlfriend. The world's a rough place. 
evil's real. Look at how Matthew describes it. We'll just read it one more time. Matthew 2, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was tricked. You remember, if you were here last week, that Herod was the one who set out to trick the wise men. He told them, when you find the child, tell me where he is because I want to go worship him. He's trying to pull the trick, and he ends up being tricked. I told you, they're clowns. The Herods are all clowns on the pages of Scripture. When he realized that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And just listen to the honesty of it. He sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years under or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This story reminds us that evil is real. You can't pretend it doesn't exist. This story reminds us that evil is horrific. This story also reminds us that the incarnation of Jesus, God becoming man, God being born as a human baby in Bethlehem, was necessary because sin is real. It was necessary. God wasn't just going to snap his fingers and make it all go away. It had to be dealt with, and he sent his son to deal with it. The good news of this story is that the hero who came didn't come simply to destroy all of his enemies. He came to save his enemies. He came to be destroyed for his enemies. And you understand if you've read this story, Jesus is the hero. You and I are the villains. We're the bad guys. We're the rebels. We're the ones guilty of cosmic treason. And Jesus is the hero who came to save us. It reminds us of this truth, the birth of Jesus being necessary. It reminds us that Scripture was fulfilled in the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Scripture was fulfilled every step along the way. I tried to emphasize this as we read the passage earlier. Look at Matthew 2.15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Look at verse 17. You draw a little line down to verse 17. This was uh, fulfilled, then was fulfilled, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. You can draw another line to verse 23, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Three fulfillments. Old Testament prophecies fulfilled right here in the birth of Jesus. Now, I want to be honest with you. We're going to talk about all three of these. These are not the easiest things to understand in the Bible. Sometimes when you read the Bible, the cookies are not always on the lowest shelf. This is one of those passages. So I'm asking you to think with me. Lock in and think about these passages. There's a challenge here, but it's important to see what Matthew is saying, right? Here's the first prophecy fulfilled. Jesus is the true Israel. He's the true Israel. This is Matthew 2.15. The reference is back to Hosea. Hosea is a minor prophet. Hosea 11.1. Hosea 11.1 is up on the screen and it says this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Listen, Hosea lived many years after the Exodus. And he's looking back on that event. And he's reminding God's people, you were slaves in Egypt. And the Lord God called you out of Egypt and he called you into a special relationship with him. He called you as a people out to be his son. Matthew is saying, 
that prophecy, that same idea is being fulfilled in Jesus going down to Egypt and he's going to be called out as a son. Matthew's telling us Jesus is the true Israel. Listen, the people of Israel went to Egypt in the Old Testament for survival. They were about to starve to death. There was a grave danger to their lives. Jesus, the true Israel, goes down to Egypt for survival. There is a king, quote-unquote, asterisk king, who is a cold-blooded killer who wants Jesus dead. He goes down for survival. In the Old Testament, God called Israel out to be his. God is going to call Jesus out from Egypt to be his. The people of Israel, as they leave Egypt, they pass through the waters of the Red Sea that are waters of judgment on God's enemies. What happened at Jesus' baptism? He wades into the Jordan River where John the Baptist is preaching a message of repentance and judgment, and Jesus passes through the waters. He says to John, I know you don't understand this. It's got to be done to fulfill all righteousness. He's reliving Israel's history. Israel passes through the Red Sea. They go out into the wilderness. They're tested and tempted for 40 years. What happens immediately after Jesus' baptism? He goes out into the wilderness, and he is tested and tempted for 40 days. He is the true Israel. People argue about this all the time today. There's one group of people that says the true Israel is the church. We're done with the old covenant. The church is the true Israel. No more nation of Israel. Now it's all in the church. There's another group of people that say, no, 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 no. Bibi Netanyahu and the nation state of Israel and the flag with the bars and the star, that's the true Israel. That's the true Israel God, the nation that's been reestablished. And Matthew walks right into that debate, and he says, you're both wrong. It's Jesus. Like, it's the ultimate Sunday school answer. He is the true Israel. He relives Israel's history, and he obeys where Israel fails. Number one, he's the true Israel. Listen, that's checkers. Now we're going to chess, okay? Prophecy number two. Jesus is the greater Moses. He's the greater Moses. Matthew 2.18 references Jeremiah 31.15, and I'll put Jeremiah 31.15 on the board. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. If you've read the Old Testament, you know Jeremiah lived during the exile. Rachel lived way back in the book of Genesis. So Rachel is weeping, Jeremiah says, for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Here's the point in Jeremiah. Jeremiah is watching the people leave the promised land and be driven into exile. And literally, they are walking down a road as they leave the promised land. And they're walking down a road. On the side of this road is a tomb. It's Rachel's tomb. They're literally walking by the place Rachel was buried. And in a poetic way, Jeremiah says, it's as if Rachel is weeping because the people of Israel are being driven into exile. They're no more. Matthew, of all the Old Testament verses he could pull, he pulls that one. And he says, you know what? It's kind of like that right now in Bethlehem. Rachel, weeping for her children because these babies have been killed. You say, well, that's kind of a depressing fulfillment. 
is not all that Matthew is saying when he quotes Jeremiah 31. If you go back and read Jeremiah 31, the weeping of Rachel turns into joy because God promises a new covenant. The old covenant instituted by Moses at Mount Sinai ultimately ends in exile. Israel gets kicked out of the promised land. Jeremiah says there's going to be a new covenant. And in the new covenant, all of God's people will know the Lord. It's the covenant that was instituted not by Moses at Sinai, but by Jesus at Calvary. All of that is wrapped up in this prophecy about Rachel weeping for her children. The death of the babies in Bethlehem and the hope of a new covenant that won't end in such tragedy. Now, we've gone from checkers to chess. Now we're going to play 4D chess. You ready? Here's the third prophecy. Jesus is the suffering servant. He's the suffering servant. Look at Matthew 2, verse 23. It says, He went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Not a Nazarite. That's a completely different thing in the Old Testament. But a Nazarene. He would be called someone from Nazareth. Seems pretty straightforward, right? Here's the problem. There is no Old Testament prophecy that says this. Not a single one. You can read Genesis to Malachi. You can read it backwards like looking for hidden messages. You can read it sideways. You can read it in Hebrew. You can read it in Greek. You're not going to find it. There is no prophecy in the Old Testament that says the Messiah will be from Nazareth. He will be a Nazarene. And yet Matthew says pretty clearly... He went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. How do you sort that out? I think this is how you sort it out. The greatest Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah is Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. It's the longest prophecy about the Messiah. It's the most detailed prophecy about the Messiah. Talks about his life, talks about his death, talks about his resurrection, talks about his ministry, all of it. And right in the middle of it, this is what you read in Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised, circle the word despised, and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was, circle the word, despised. And we esteemed him not. If there was any place in first century Israel that was despised, it was Nazareth. People looked down on it. They despised it. And they despised the people that came from that town. It's sort of like if you talk to somebody who's from Dallas and lives in Dallas and you ask them what they think about Fort Worth. (laughs) Fort Worth. Who would live in Fort Worth? Are you kidding me? Or then you talk to somebody who lives in Fort Worth and you say, hey, what do you think about West Texas? No way I'd live in Odessa. Are you kidding me? You talk to somebody who lives in Midland. I would never lower myself to live in Odessa. It's a despised place. People in Odessa say, well, we're not Andrews. You ever been to Andrews? And you go to Andrews and they say, man, Seminole's the worst. We hate those guys. And Seminole says, we're not McCamey. At least we're not McCamey. It could always be worse, right? You just whittle it down all the way down, and you say, who is the most despised? In first century Israel, it was Nazareth. 
despised. It was sort of like a code word for people look down on you and they cluck their tongue at you. So when Matthew says he went to Nazareth and they called him a Nazarene, everyone who lived in that area understood, oh, we hate those guys. We despise those guys. We look down on those guys and we think very little of those guys. It's the fulfillment of Isaiah 53.3. And if you read the rest of Isaiah 52 and 53, it tells us that Jesus was the suffering servant who came to bear our sins and die our death. He was despised and rejected by men. Right? Take all those prophecies together. We play checkers and chess and 4D chess, right? Take all those prophecies together. Think about the fulfillment that Matthew wants you to see. This is what the takeaway is. This story reminds us of the sovereignty of God. The absolute, unshakable, unstoppable sovereignty of God. And I can't think of a better passage to, to illustrate this point than Psalm 2. Well, I'm going to put a few verses of Psalm 2 up on the screen. Psalm 2, verse 1 to 4. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, put kings in air quotes, put a little asterisk by it. There's only one king. But all the kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, that's against Yahweh, and against his anointed, literally against his Messiah, or in Greek you would say against his Christ, and what do they say? They say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. How does heaven receive this setting themselves against the Lord and the Messiah? Well, the one who sits in heaven, he laughs. And the Lord holds them in derision. Herod comes up with this little scheme. I'm going to trick the wise man. I'm going to tell him I want to worship the child. I'm going to go and I'm going to kill the child. And God laughs, not because it's funny, but because there is less than a 0% chance of it working. It will not work. Some of you are sports fans. Some of you are like me. You, you've got the ESPN app on your phone, and you watch your favorite team, and ESPN has this little chart that they update every second of the game. And if your team's doing better, your line goes up, and they say, oh, you've got a pretty good chance of winning this game. And then if your team does poorly, your line starts to go down. And if you do really poorly, it goes down even further. So the Cowboys are going to play later today. And the line right now actually says, I looked at it this morning, it actually says the Cowboys are supposed to win. We have a little bit of a chance of success. But as soon as we walk on the field, that line's going to drop. It's going to go down. They're going to say you have no chance to win this game. And as soon as we're going to get the ball, it's going to go down further and further and further. And maybe by some miracle, something good happens and the line goes up and we say, hey, we have, we have a chance. That's what Cowboys fans always think. We have a chance. We never have a chance. Ignore the app. It's not real. It's just imaginary. But you know what I'm talking about. You have a good chance of success. You have a poor chance of success. Listen. When you look at this story, God had warned Joseph about the whole thing before Herod even gave the order. There was no chance of it succeeding. Sometimes in TV and movies, it's portrayed as if the soldiers come knocking on the front door and Joseph and the family are escaping out the back door and you say, whoo, that was close. I mean, they almost had him. Just by the skin of their teeth, they got away. That's not how it went down at all. They were gone. There was no chance of success. 
Why? It's because God is completely sovereign over all things, including the death of his son. It's why when you read the story in the book of Acts about the apostles being persecuted, and they go back and they have a prayer meeting, they pray together, they do two things. Number one, they quote Psalm 2. And they say, the kings of the earth, they set themselves against the Lord and against his Messiah, and the Lord laughs at them. And the very next thing the apostles do is they say, as they're praying, Lord, what Pilate did, what Herod did, what the Gentiles did, what the Jews did, it was only exactly what you predestined to take place. You were completely sovereign over all of it. It's why when Jesus goes back to Nazareth about 30 years later and he preaches a sermon and everyone gets so mad they literally want to kill Jesus and they drag him out of the synagogue to the edge of town and they're going to throw him off the cliff, God just laughs. It's not the time. And Jesus just walks through their midst. It's why about three years after that, when Jesus is teaching in the temple and he claims to be one with God the Father, the Jews get so mad that he would blaspheme in the temple precincts. And they pick up rocks and they're ready to pelt Jesus with rocks. They're ready to kill him. It's just months before he dies, God laughs and Jesus just walks through their midst. It wasn't the time. He wasn't going to die at that feast. He was going to die at the Passover. God was completely sovereign over all of it. All that happened was only what he had predestined to take place. Look, when you read these prophecies, one after another, fulfilled, 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 you say, none of of this is happenstance. God's not winging it. He is completely sovereign over what's happening at the very first Christmas, over who comes to be a guest at the first Christmas, and ultimately over the death of his son. Brings us to one last point. This story reminds us of the active and the passive obedience of Christ. Now, admittedly, these are not the best terms because they they tend to make us think things that I'm not trying to make you think. But they're serviceable for what we're trying to say here. The active obedience of Jesus. That's what theologians use as a term to describe Jesus obeying the law of God. Jesus living a life of perfect and complete righteousness. The passive obedience of Christ is the term theologians use to describe Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. The good shepherd laid down his life. No one took it, but he laid it down. That's the passive obedience of Jesus where he suffers and dies. Active obedience He obeys the Lord perfectly in all things. Passive obedience, he dies for our sins. You and I need both of those. If, if the only thing that we needed was Jesus to die for us, it could have happened here. God could have saved the ink and cut the whole story short and saved the drama, and Jesus could have died. He was fully God. His deity wasn't something that was added to him later. He was truly human. He wasn't a pretend baby. He was a real human. Fully God, truly God, fully human, truly human, completely sinless. He could have died. God could have let this clown Herod kill his son instead of the next clown Herod who did kill his son. Here's the thing. We need more than a Savior who will die for us. We also need a Savior who will live for us. 
we desperately need Jesus to die for us and to take the penalty of our sin, to bear the wrath of God for our sin. But we also need Jesus to give us his righteousness. We need our sin taken away, and we need the gift of righteousness. Paul brings both of these ideas together in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin. He knew no sin. Why did he do that? Why did Jesus, in his passive obedience, bear our sin and die for our sin? Here's the reason. So that in Jesus, we could become the righteousness of God. Paul's talking about an exchange that takes place when you repent of your sin and you trust in Jesus. Your sin is counted as paid by the passive obedience of Jesus dying on the cross. And the righteousness of Jesus himself, earned in his act of obedience, is given to you as a gift. We need both of those things. We need Jesus to take away our sin, and we need him to give us the righteousness that we need to stand before God. Look, in the end, this story is a little bit like a, a perfect mashup of a true crime story and a Hallmark movie, right? The beauty of a true crime story is that it's honest about life and sin and how horrific it is. This story is honest about the horrors of sin. There's a great slaughter that takes place in Bethlehem, something that scarred that community for centuries, There's also honesty about the cross, about this baby who was born to die, the suffering servant who would be hated and despised and rejected, and he would be our sin bearer. If you want to see the full ugliness of sin, don't look to the slaughter of the babies in Bethlehem. Look at the cross and see the punishment that was poured out on God the Son at the cross. That's where you see the true horror of sin. So there's honesty here. There's also the hope of a happy ending. Not just a happy ending, but a a life after this life where there will be no more villain. There will be no more bad guy. There will be no more rebellion. There will be no more world-threatening problem. There will be God with his people, and his people have received the righteousness of Jesus, and they enjoy a relationship with the Father. This story reminds us of that, the act of obedience of Jesus where he earns the righteousness that we need and his passive obedience where he dies the death that we deserved. Let's pray.